I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, the good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like you know grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Dean Detloff. And I'm going to co-host Matt Bernico. And Matt is still not yet uh, over the ocean into Scotland. He's still in the belly of the beast in the United States. And uh, Matt, Matt, how's it looking? Well, the, the belly of the beast, it's bad. It's always bad to be in here. Uh, it's acidic. It's uh, dark. <laughs> Just a really bad Pinocchio. <laughs> it's a bad Pinocchio, and I'm in here. Um by the time this episode comes out, though, I will be on the other side of the ocean. And I like that feeling, the, the feeling that there's a future me that is not <laughs> quite as stressed as I am right now. Um, I've been packing, I've been unpacking, I've been repacking. Um, folks, here's one thing that I am really good at, and that is packing a bag. Um, I have a great strategy. I've got a great uh, folding technique, and I'm fitting so much into these bags. I'm min-maxing my bags. Um, I'm going to bring them to the airport, and they're going to be like, wow. Never seen anything like this before. <laughs> you know, it's reading all that Deleuze. You know so much about folding, and now you've got it. <laughs> That's Putting true. It action. <laughs> yeah. These big monadic bags. <laughs> well, it's the, the last episode that might uh, ever be recorded by someone currently living in the United States. I mean, apart from guests, but... Uh, That's wise. true. I know. It's bonkers to think that this episode that does primarily focus on <laughs> so much of American Christianity will, will now be undertaken by two people who don't live there anymore. But we're expats. I think it's great. Yeah. Uh, it yeah, gives you yeah, a, yeah. a unique perspective on the homeland that you left. Uh, so I look yeah, forward to Yeah, that's true. That's true. Since we talked last, though, I do need to say this. Uh, on the last episode, I did mention about uh, the Church of Scotland versus um, uh, Anglican churches and, and offering me something. And here's the thing, though. The um, the pastor from the Church of Scotland, she wrote me back and she did say that um, <laughs> that my child can come to their vacation Bible school. <laughs> and uh, it's a pretty good offer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that is a pretty good offer. Um, well, I can't wait till you're back on the show and you do have a, uh, a Shrek accent that you can bring to some of these important conversations. Um, but we're not talking about that. For Matt's big last blowout episode in the US of A, uh, we are talking about Franz Hinkelemerit, a guy with a great last name um, that I'm most assuredly pronouncing incorrectly. Uh, he's a very interesting guy, and I think a pretty appropriate person to think about as you leave the United States, Matt. What do you think? Yeah, I think so, too. Um, you guys might remember that, I don't know, probably years ago now, we did do an episode on Francine Clomart called, um, well, I don't know what the episode's called, but we talked about his book, The Ideological Weapons of Death. 
Um, it's a book where he talks a lot about capital and it's such a good one. <laughs> it's a great book. I love it. I love the cover of it. The art of it is incredible. Anyways, Hinklemart is a really fascinating guy. He definitely is like, well, so he has a PhD in economics. That's an important thing to say. We can say more things about him personally, but he brings that like economic perspective to theology in a way that I think um, not many other people do. And I love it. It's great. It's a really important uh, resource. And I think, um, man, I wish more people read Hinklemart. I agree. I'm gonna call him Hank. I think I think Hank is a is an appropriate moniker for this for this great guy. That's good. The big Hank himself, uh, back on campus. I don't know. He feels like a <laughs> like a guy from an '80s college movie for some reason to me when you call him that. Um, oh, you mean Hank? Yeah, that's yeah, right. He's here. <laughs> yeah, I, he is a really interesting guy, and I think a pretty underread uh, liberation theologian, um, but somebody who can get you pretty far, especially if you're trying to learn something about Marxism, but. Marxist terminology is not that easy or doesn't come naturally to you. You can just read Hinklemer. He'll figure it out for you and he'll use great Bible words to do it. Um, actually, I just finished teaching this class on Marxism and Christianity. It was great. And I had a, a person in the class, Kendra. Kendra, if you're listening, um, I guess I'm putting you on a blast here. But <laughs> she did a great oh my God. Uh, a great uh, presentation on Francine Hinklemer. And had mentioned, like, it would have been great to have that book, The Ideological Weapons of Death, while also reading Capital, because he just has, you know, different vocabularies, different metaphors. He's trying to make it all make sense a little bit. And uh, the reason we're talking about Hinkle Emeritus this time around is because he unfortunately passed away uh, just a few days ago on July 16th. Um, He was quite old, but nevertheless, sorry to see him go. Uh, Really important guy. And uh, Matt and I were talking a little bit more about him and just kind of reading about him as you do when a person passes away, just to kind of reflect on their life. And it's kind of shocking how little is published in English about Francine Glamert or by Francine Glamert. Yeah. Um, he is super interesting because he was an economist before getting into theology. And so he, you know, is theologically and economically literate, which can be hard to find. And he also is pretty influential in the Latin American left on his own right. Um, we talk about this person, Marta Harnaker, on this podcast a bunch. She's a Chilean activist and revolutionary writer. Um, she cites Hinkle Merit a lot. A lot of people on the left will cite him, not like because he's a theologian or something, but just because he's like a good economist. So uh, somebody that more Christians, I think, should be familiar with. Yeah, for sure. Um, this isn't like an exhaustive biography of him. <laughs> Very clearly. Um, but he is a German theologian and economist. He has a PhD in economy. No, he has a PhD in economics. Uh, but he uh, went to Chile during the Yende government in the 60s and 70s and taught at the university there um, and then uh, left <laughs> after Allende was deposed. Um, Cood, if you will. Um, but anyways, yeah, an important thinker if you want to think about uh, capitalism, economics and theology all at the same time. Uh, the essay that we're reading by him today is called The Economic Roots of Idolatry, Entrepreneurial Metaphysics. Um, a great title. Uh, Dean made this like really great and bendy looking <laughs> <laughs> scan of it. And if you go to Dean's Twitter, you can go find this uh, essay and read it along with us. We'll put it on the Magnificast Twitter, too, if you want to take a look there. But it's great. Um, anyways, uh, this essay is primarily about the idea of idolatry and the ways that um, capitalism, entrepreneurialism, that whole kind of like weird ideology is just idolatrous. And I think the the claim that it's idolatrous, it gives me a lot of weird feelings 
for well that maybe we'll talk about in a little bit. I think it's a it's a helpful claim that he makes, and I think it's like a compelling idea and a fun analysis of capitalism that I think is um, uses language that's really mobilizing for people in Christianity. Um, but I, the idolatrous language, there's a lot of pitfalls when it comes to idolatry as well. So um, we'll talk through it all. Whether you're a church person or not, I'm sure that you come up against the idea of idolatry. You've probably heard um, the <laughs> the biblical commandments against it. It's the number one commandment of the Ten Commandments. So in the big <laughs> um, in the big listicle of rules that God gave Moses, it's number one. It's the number. It's number one. Uh, in the book of Exodus, God tells Moses right off the bat, "You can't have any other gods but God." So there you go. It's it's there at the top. Um, there's a really strong prohibition against all kinds of idolatry within Judaism, within Christianity, and uh, it kind of presents itself in different ways, though, between these two different religions, but that's a whole other story. Um, But the prohibition of idolatry within Christianity, it comes with all kinds of, like, interesting and and sometimes unhealthy, like, presentations of itself. Evangel- uh, evangelicals specifically, you know what we're gonna we're gonna dunk on them if we can. Um, they always bring a level of like paranoia to the idea of of idolatry that you know cultural productions are in some ways idolatrous. Um, you see this expressed a lot in the weird concerns around like end times theology, where you've like accidentally taken on the mark of the beast without knowing it, and now you're an idolatrous weirdo, and God's gonna shun you or whatever. Anyways, all that to say. <laughs> that's a it's a big concern within christianity right that you're worshiping something else that isn't god and like that's you know a problem uh if you are running a like functioning monotheistic religion um so anyways hinglemart in this uh in this essay he's talking about the ways that capitalism itself the way that it works is um both a type of idolatry when it comes to christianity which i think is a pretty compelling case that he makes but also like that that capitalism is extremely theological in its particular structures um and the way that people talk about it the way that capitalists talk about it the way that like even small business owners will talk about it um is also like theological without i think intending to be and that part is really interesting right it's like the argument here is that capitalism is idolatrous because of its theological structure and people don't quite catch on to that. And he's just going to point it out for everyone to see. And I think he does a pretty interesting job. I think so too. Uh, We did an episode on idolatry a long time ago where we talked about some of these things and how certain theologians will use idolatry to kind of sidestep deeper criticisms of political economy. So I think at that time we were complaining about William Kavanaugh, who I think is not the worst theologian out of all of them. Um, no way. <laughs> but uh, he is maybe a good example of what I think is this problem where you make a pretty strong critique of how things like nation states or even the market can install themselves as regimes of like worship and kind of, you know, suck in your attention and pattern your behavior in these bad ways. But because the formulation is uh, in the the frame of idolatry, the natural conclusion is like, you should just be a better Christian. And then, you know, your attention will be rightly oriented toward God or the Eucharist instead of all that idolatrous stuff out there. So you kind of, you know, whereas uh, if you're Marx and you're criticizing the fetish of the commodity or whatever, then you want to have a materialist approach. Um, for theologians, the critique of idolatry, even if it's pretty radical, can sometimes land you in a a non-materialist approach, to say the least, but uh, yeah. also a sort of something that's hard to organize around. Let's put it that way. Here's maybe an example of a way that 
uh, Christians who are, I mean, maybe not on the left necessarily. I don't think they would necessarily categorize themselves that way, but how Christians and theologians will sometimes intervene into this conversation about idolatry in um, sometimes helpful, but also ultimately ultimately ways that are not antagonistic to capitalism. Um, so there is, there's a theologian <laughs> called Stanley Hauerwas. I, you've, we've talked about him before in the podcast, usually kind of as a foil to us in some ways. Um, in my sort of intellectual development around theology, Stanley Hauerwas is a really important guy. He kind of does this like post-liberal type of theology, I guess is what you'd call it. Um, we don't need to get into the weeds about all of it though, because we can keep this podcast running. But anyways, his particular perspective is that uh, nationalism is a type of idolatrous thing that's taken hold of evangelical Christianity. That uh, has, I mean, his his perspective is like mostly focusing on Protestantism, but I'm sure you can make lots of similar claims about Catholicism as well. But anyways, just the idea that, you know, you have a church and you're, well, you have a flag in your, your church's sanctuary and that's like, you know, a type of idolatry. You say the Pledge of Allegiance during church, that's the type of idolatry all these things where you're starting to put like, um, you know, like the, the nation state before your theological convictions that ends up being like idolatrous. Right. And Hauerwas's response to this is like, yeah, I mean, kind of like what you're saying, Dean, an unhelpful <laughs> kind of position, or at least maybe a, a hard to organize, you know, where, where the point is like, well, you just got to get these flags out of churches or whatever. And like, well, that's not going to do it. <laughs> I mean, fine. Like get them out. That's okay. Like I'm, I'm not going to argue with you about that whatsoever. But like, uh, it's not really kind of grasping the the larger structures of like nationalistic and fascist belief that kind of undergirds a lot of those uh, those types of things. It, it kind of leaves those unquestioned and and opts for like, you know, uh, a more authentic Christianity that is like, um, I, I don't know, more theologically in line with a particular type of tradition or something, and and breaking with um, more nationalistic types. And and that's great, but it seems like. Um, to me, that's like the start of the conversation and not the end of the conversation. Yeah. To, to maybe, yeah, be, be nice about it. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's right. And uh, what I find compelling about Hinklemerit and also um, the other essays in the book that this comes out of, uh, which I'll talk about in a minute, is that there's a way of talking about idolatry that doesn't land you in a kind of retreat, I guess, into the church, but mm -hmm. does the opposite. It's like it, once you have uh, a different analysis of idolatry, then you can take maybe a more proactive organizing stance against it, um, you know, with lots of other tools as well. And uh, I think Hinkle Emerit does a good job maybe giving us a, a different path to think about idolatry. So the essay, it comes out of this book called The Idols of Death and the God of Life, um, which was edited by Pablo Richard, who's also a kind of like economically literate uh, liberation theologian. And the book was initially published in Spanish through a Costa Rican institute called, I forget what it is in Spanish, but in English, it's the Department of Ecumenical Investigations. And Hinklemerit helped set that up. So this book is kind of like a, you know, product of that, that institution. And uh, it was uh, something Hinkle Emerit spent basically his whole life kind of working in uh, after being exiled from Chile. And the whole book is great. It's all just really incredibly wild essays about the theme of idolatry. You should pick it up. Uh, Wiffenstock reprinted it a while back, but it's also, I think it's, maybe it's not actually an archive. Anyway, um, it's a book worth having, but uh, Hinkle Emerit's essay is really interesting because he's talking about the, as we, as Matt said in the title, the economic roots of idolatry. So he's trying to sort of do this analysis of exactly what kind of idol 
is capitalism. And in particular, if you were an entrepreneur in a capitalist economy, uh, what kind of theological ideas would you have? Or what are the, what's the theology that keep, kind of keeps you going and motivates your activities? Uh, the essay is really fascinating. It's <laughs> It doesn't have a very strong, like, I don't know, A to B to C kind of logic to it. It's more like a lot of yeah. <laughs> rhetorical analysis. It's vibes-based. Yeah, it's very vibes-based. Yeah. Um, but the vibes are great. So I guess as a result, also, maybe this podcast won't have a very <laughs> A to B to C logic to it. Not that it usually does. But um, we'll kind of maybe follow Hank Lomert's lead and pick up a few things we think are interesting. There's a lot that we're going to leave out as well. But um, the key there is that Hank Lomert's really trying to pull out what are the metaphysical assumptions of capitalism. And... Uh, I'll turn it to you, Matt, to talk about one in just a minute. But uh, the reason I think this is so important is when you talk to people who defend capitalism, inevitably, uh, the conversation usually comes down to being like, well, that's just the way that economics is or just the way people behave. Economics and capitalist economics is sort of a system that safeguards the natural state of human beings. And yeah, it might not be very good all the time. It might be kind of ugly, but like that's life, you know, that's human nature, that's just how it is out there. And what Hank Lemaire does is to say, well, that is actually a pretty messed up story. <laughs> and capitalism <laughs> relies on a bunch of stories to kind of keep itself going. And if we didn't have those stories, it would collapse. So, Matt, um, I'm going to turn it over to you. What's uh, what's one part of this story that Hank Lemaire tells? <laughs> it's story time. Um, all right. Yeah, everyone sit crisscross applesauce and I'll tell you about it. So... <laughs> Um, if you asked me how the economy worked, I would tell you, you know, um, it works because uh, workers sell their labor power to capitalists for a wage, right? Like, that's like the basic building block of the story of um, how, how our economy functions. But um, capitalists will tell you a very different story. And the story that Hinklemart focuses on and kind of like parses out is that uh, the capitalist economy from from the perspective of capitalists, right? This is like kind of where he's talking from. It functions based on the um, around around commodities and um, businesses as like the sort of fundamental um, building blocks of the economy. So I'm going to read this piece here, and we can kind of talk about exactly how he sees this happening, or or, or, what, or what it looks like from this like capitalist theological perspective. Hinkelomart writes: Commodities seem to be little devils moving in and out of all kinds of interrelationships. They seem to exhibit human behavior. The location of their moves is the market, especially the stock exchange. There, commodities rise and fall, gain ground and lose ground, have victories and suffer, spin upward and fall. Among them, there appear enmities and friendships. There are mergers and commitments, and many conflicts arise around them. Um, this is like a, a quote, an imaginary quote from somebody. The dollar underwent a slight decline yesterday. You can imagine a stock market person saying that for sure. It lost ground on the other markets. Where will the downward trend of the dollar end? The dollar is plummeting. With the weakness of the American dollar, the market for the European currency is flourishing. What is said about the dollar is said about every commodity. Um, so this story is kind of like the the play. He's what he's doing is like taking like the the rhetoric of like economic people of business people, um, you know, around the world. Basically, this is like this is talk that you'd hear from any kind of business oriented capitalist person, right? And he's just kind of like laying it out here. That's the beginning of the story, Hink Lamart says, for the theology of capitalism. It's um, it's all about commodities at first. A story that has no people within it. An important <laughs> distinction. Um, because they don't think about that part, right? They think primarily about the 
the larger like mechanical structures of these things happening and not the workers doing them. Cause if they did, they, you know, <laughs> might be more sympathetic to uh labor movement and so, and so on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, Hank Lemmer even goes on to say that he says, uh, the economic world of business is not inhabited by human beings, but by commodities, the commodities take action and human beings run after them. The basic agent in the world is a commodity moving and carrying out social action. Following the commodity commodities, the business firms appear in this world of business, firms, too, engage in action, not to be confused with human action. All the social relationships that entrepreneurs discover in commodities, they rediscover in business firms. Entrepreneurs do not view themselves as the prime movers. From their standpoint, the business firm is the prime mover. They are nothing but the leading employee of the business firm. And I think this is actually a really interesting sort of like even <laughs> psychological reading of entrepreneurs that uh, they, you know, they understand themselves as, as chasing the trends in the market. Uh, mm-hmm. you, and even critical uh, people looking at uh, the economy sometimes talk this way. Um, you can think, too, about maybe some of the like strange machinations of people who are mad about the market. Like I, it makes me think about like the GameStop uh, stuff with people shorting the stock. And oh, everything. yeah. You know, like that's a great point. Yeah. Like even folks who are critical of the market sort of see the market as this big collection of forces that are kind of going around. And your job is to kind of like, you know, read the tea leaves (laughs) like uh, the the commodities are the ones taking all the actions. The stocks are going up and down. um, The shares are going up and down. And if you want to be uh, a participant in it, you have to sort of, you know, read the read the signs correctly um, so that you come out on top. And I think it's interesting that he starts that way. Um, Hinkle Merritt, you know, is very influenced by Marx's reading of Capital, which famously also starts with an analysis of commodities. And I think that's what Hinkle Merritt is doing here, too. The same thing that Marx does, which is to say, you know, the commodity is the kind of thing that we tell a lot of stories about and also a thing that shields a lot of stories so like for yeah. Karl Marx, when you think about when you buy a commodity at the store, you're also not really thinking about where it comes from, who did the labor to get it to you, where was it, you know, mined or planted or harvested or whatever. Um, you're just buying the commodity. It obscures all these other relationships underneath it. And Marx is trying to be like, OK, there's all this other stuff going on. Um, Hinkle Lamert is doing the same thing. You know, commodities are out there doing all this stuff. Uh, but in fact, they're they're not. <laughs> they're they're these little devils running around. But you know that's the metaphysical worldview of the entrepreneur. It's not, in fact, what makes the world go round. That's right. Evangelicals this whole time they've been worrying about Pokemon as little little devils, but this whole time <laughs> it's been commodities, and they just didn't know the wrong little devils. Um, something else I was thinking about as I was reading this part here towards at the beginning. I mean, I think it's a it's a sustained point as well throughout this essay is that sometimes you'll even read like more like not business people or more like liberal economists talk about the economy in like with different language, but kind of coming to the same point. Right. Like one of my my favorite hobbies of like the last few years has been reading the Economic Policy Institute briefs, which is like a liberal economic think tank that's really friendly to unions. And I think is I think generally really good. But like. Um, they too are like just interpreting the economic tea leaves from, you know, from their like particular economic perch, which means talking about things like the jobs report, right? Like every month you'll hear about um, jobs are up, jobs are down or whatever. Right. And still, even though that's like kind of focusing on labor, it's still sort of like a weird, um, a weird like mechanistic way to think about the economy. Cause it's not again, focusing on anyone who's doing the work. It's just focusing on whether or not there's job growth and it doesn't tell you, you know, are they good jobs? Are they union jobs? Are they jobs that pay more than, you know, $15 an hour? Who knows? 
Um, but I would say there's like different ways that people tell these stories about the economy. And uh, either way, though, I think that when you when you're telling that story of the economy and and you're finding like um, a reading that is devoid of uh class tensions you're doing something wrong or when when business owners find themselves like as um not the not an actor in the story but someone who's just being acted on upon like the large um free uh free hand of the of the market uh, i think there's a, a pretty big problem right um it's also interesting you know we talked about monopoly capital a little while ago um which is a probably boring episode <laughs> but uh talking about other economists um, you know, Baran and Sweezy also have this idea that uh, the the sort of archetypical business person in uh, Monopoly, they are really sort of there's a strange way in which capitalism atomizes you, but you you really want your firm to succeed. You know, you're you're really trying to identify yourself with the success of like the business that you're part of, um, even if that success means, you know, the destruction of other people. And uh, I think that's another piece that entrepreneur that entrepreneurs, I guess, don't get in Hinkle Emirates reading as well. You know, they are the they're the leading employee of the business firm. It's the business firm that is the prime mover, though, at the end of the day. Yeah. And what that does yeah. is it, it absolves you from all kinds of other sins that you're committing. It absolves you from all those sins, but it also is important because it acts as like a I mean, it acts as a theological figure over them. Right. right. Um and Hinglemar will go on to say it, um, it. There are ways that you can be redeemed by that, like theological figure of the market. You know, there's all kinds of things uh, that are going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's keep on trucking through Hinglemar. I'm excited about it. <laughs> um, so, c- continuing to tell the story about, um, you know, the theological story of the market and of capitalism, he says this: the most common social relationship between commodities and business firms is perceived and described by entrepreneurs as that of war. They claim that it's a healthy, wholesome war, but it's not a matter of catch as catch can. It is a war with goals and with rules. That is why the business firms that do not abide by them are accused of being terrorists. But the war is waged among gentlemen and noblemen. Um, <laughs> I think that like it's interesting because, uh, I mean, the uh, the theological language or the theological lens is what Hinklemar is bringing to it. But this is the... Um, as, as evidenced by Business Week in this uh, quote, this is like the frame that I think that uh, people actually within the business world do bring to it, right? It's not, uh, <laughs> to them, it's not a theology, but there's like a war. And interestingly enough, though, they're not the generals in the war even. They're just like, <laughs> they're just guys. They're just guys uh, carrying it out. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, he even goes on to say, too, that uh, when entrepreneurs talk about war among business firms, they're not really using allegory. Uh, however, they treat it as a war among generals, and therefore there's little talk about casualties. And I think, uh, I mean, we'll talk more about that in a minute, because Hinkle Emeritt has some good tangible examples of some of the casualties of the, the war of business. But uh, what I think is really fascinating about him zeroing in on that metaphor is that uh, he does this really great analysis of, like, articles in the business press throughout this piece, which I think is really fascinating, by the way, like, one thing I love about Hinkle Merritt, he's always like reading speeches by people at the World Bank or the IMF or, you know, in like Business Week or whatever, and then just like telling you what they say. And Hinkle Merritt's like, what if we just believe them? <laughs> like, took them really seriously that yeah. they're being honest. And uh, so when he talks about uh, capitalism being a matter of war, I think it's really fascinating because he's trying to sort of sort out what exactly is that kind of war? You know, what what, what does that metaphor do? How does it kind of set up the relationships between people. Um, he also notes that the, it's not the only metaphor. Like there's also metaphors of health that 
the market is like a sick body that needs to be healed by all kinds of different, you know, the weird like doctors of banks or whatever. Um, lots of strange kind of ways that we've devised to talk about the economy. But what's great is Hinklemerd is like, so these are the metaphors that, that capitalists use to talk about it. And if you asked a capitalist, like, is it an actual war or is it like a sick body or something that we're working on? You know, some of them might say yes, but some of them will probably be like, well, that's just, you know, a turn of phrase or that's just writing or whatever. Um, But what's great about Hinkle is I think he's saying, well, it actually is more than that. (laughs) And it's like a whole worldview. And the fact is, like, it is all made up like the the relations are made up. And even underneath the metaphor, the economy itself is made up. And so the way that we choose to express that kind of made up economy with these other metaphors is really telling and revealing. So I like that approach of just maybe taking <laughs> taking business people more seriously than they sometimes take themselves. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's important to say it's made up because it is idolatrous, but it's also extremely real in, in so yeah. many <laughs> very painful ways. I mean, I think the thing that that ends up, well, here, I'm going to read this quote and then I'll say the thing that I'm going to say. Um, So later on, he says this entrepreneurs obey this great force. That is, you know, the force of the economy. And it's this obedience that makes them great entrepreneurs. Hence the conviction of entrepreneurs that they are ideally humble and truly exemplary persons. The maximizing of profits appears to them as an act of public service that they render, and it gives them compensation commensurate to their devotion. Even if they are not churchgoers, entrepreneurs are deeply religious persons who preach to the entire world the good news of subjugation to the anonymous machinery of the markets, wherein a supreme being issues them challenges. I like this quote because it actually does get into like, okay, I mean, you know, there's like the war going on and all this kind of stuff, but it does kind of tell you about the comportment of entrepreneurs in the world that I think it, it, it tells you about it in a way that I think is re- like really true and actually kind of helpful to understand. Um you know, we've kind of talked, Dean, you said, the, you know, like they're reading the tea leaves. And I think that's right. Kind of like, <laughs> you know, you're waiting for the spirit to move you in one way or the other. But it is deeply religious in that they are like subsumed within a whole weird hierarchy of like of story, um, of of order, um, of of storied order. And I think what that does is that, you know, it, it obscures who's in charge. First of all, that's bad. Um, but also, I think what else it does is that it creates a like a maintenance cycle of capitalism that even if like all of the entrepreneurs disappeared one day there's enough like um there's enough mechanics to it all that will just produce more entrepreneurs and and like without even really mm-hmm. trying right it, i mean i think that's like maybe the most upsetting part of it is that uh well like when i was when i was teaching at a university students really wanted to be business people <laughs> and it's like why? <laughs> um, I mean, they had a lot of different reasons, and a lot of them had to do with like the the idea that they'd be making a lot of money when that's probably not actually very true. Um, but uh, I think that's that's the frustrating part is that like the um, that entrepreneurs they conceptualize themselves of like um, you know as, as these people who are beholden to the market. Uh, it, it signals that there's like this larger that, that there really exists. I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's not just a story. It is idolatrous for a lot of reasons, but it's not just a story that like they're making up in their own heads. But that there is actually a whole bunch of like machinations out there in the world that are creating sort of like people su- to be subjects to entrepreneurialism. I guess that that's the thing. I, I guess I want to make sure we're, mm-hmm. we're getting clear here is it's idolatrous for a lot of reasons that we'll continue to talk about. But like 
the social forces that create entrepreneurs and that create the market are very mm-hmm. real, you know, um, and they bring people within that, uh, the, the structures and, and form them into people who want to do business. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. And that's exactly. Yeah. I mean, just cause something's made up doesn't mean that it doesn't have a uh, material consequences or, you know, <laughs> organize our, our lives in all kinds of messed up ways. Um, I, I think, uh, what else is really fascinating about that too? Like, when we talk about uh, entrepreneurs being at war with each other and even kind of, um, you know, having it be having them also be themselves as rendering a public service, you know, it might seem like these two things are, I guess, uh, against each other or at odds, but they they're not <laughs> for Hinkle and Merritt. Um, it's it's that war among gentlemen, a war among generals that I think is key. Yeah. And what it made me think of is uh, I don't know why GameStop keeps coming to mind for me, um, but there was some... just a gamer. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm just a big gamer right now. Uh, there was this documentary about the GameStop short that I was watching and at the end of it, they have this like, you know, all these talking heads and one of them is kind of a Wall Street insider or whatever. And throughout the documentary, you're like, the documentary is trying to get you on the side of the the GameStop shorters. And so this guy is the villain or whatever. And at the end of it, he says, you know, these people, they think that they like pulled one over on all of all of us rich guys. And he's like, you know, I do make a lot of money. I'm a rich guy. But uh, all the money that I make is made like managing pensions for working class people. And like what you're doing is messing with, you know, the retirements of like basically people who are like your mom and dad or whatever. And the uh, (laughs) the way that he says it is so funny because it's supposed to be like his great redeeming quality that he's a rich guy because he like helps your mom and dad. Uh, and it's exactly that kind of narrative <laughs> that he's rendering a public service by, you know, really like piloting the ship of all their pensions through the dangerous, tr- turbulent waters of like the stock market. And the point that he makes throughout the documentary is that like the GameStop people, it's almost like they're doing like guerrilla warfare and you're not supposed to do that. You know, you're all supposed to like line up and get your muskets out and be in like clear uniforms and shoot each other. And then all these people are like, you know, not playing by those rules. And that's creating all these problems, which is partly true. Although I wouldn't say they're a uh, heroic uh, guerrilla warriors myself. <laughs> they're, just, they're, they're economic <laughs> terrorists. I mean, he, the, yeah, he exactly. Said it earlier, right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, but all that to say, like, I thought that was so revealing to have this guy, I guess, try to, to get you over on his side as like a rich guy mm-hmm. by, you know, by trying to be like, I'm doing you all a favor by making sure you can retire. Um, and that is how a lot of entrepreneurs see themselves, you know, is just like, yeah, sure, they're maybe better off than this or that person. But at the end of the day, they're just trying to like, enable the, you know, the advance of human civilization and kind of make sure that hardworking people get theirs in the end. And that is like a pretty metaphysical belief. You have to be deeply religious to yeah. look around your world and, and think that about yourself. <laughs> Or even the claim that like uh, the entrepreneurs, they're they're job creators, right? So we should all be like really happy that they're investing money in X, mm-hmm. Y, or Z exploitative business or something. But it's it's the same the same thing, right? They're actually providing a public service. That's what they want you to believe, but it is uh, not true. <laughs> it's right. not good. It's not not a public service at all. It's a private service, in fact. <laughs> so I think too the there's this uh, sense that. You know, you gotta you gotta play by the rules and whatever. But there's also obviously a lot of rule enforcement that goes into uh, keeping capitalism on the rails. And uh, Hinkle Merritt talks a lot about that as well. And he'll say capitalists and entrepreneurs they love to talk about freedom, 
And he goes to great lengths to explain what they think about freedom and how they think about it and so on. But the real kind of kicker for him is that it's actually not human beings that should be free, but commodities. And this is especially true in neoliberalism, a thing that Hinklemerit was super interested in analyzing. And uh, he says this, in entrepreneurial metaphysics, this freedom of commodities is basic, and in the final analysis, the only freedom. Human rights, for example, are purely incidental. With commodities free, business firms are free. Therefore, entrepreneurs are free, and the entire society is free. From the standpoint of entrepreneurial metaphysics, uh, the most absolute tyranny could be the site of freedom, because according to this metaphysics, the human being is free in the degree to which commodities are free. And this might seem like kind of some lefty rhetoric or something, but I think you have to keep in mind that he's writing as a as an exile from Chile specifically, where this literally happened, right? So Pinochet, he's a fascist who takes over uh, the government and, you know, um, overthrows Allende. And uh, who does he call to help build the economy? But the Chicago School libertarian economists who all come down and you have this really bizarre conflation of like total state repression and state power marked by torture and disappearance on the one hand and the complete privatization of the economy led by these Chicago school uh, economists who are writing books about like capitalism and freedom and so on on the other hand. And so when he says the most absolute tyranny could be the site of freedom for entrepreneurial metaphysics, he's actually talking about something specific. <laughs> like he's talking mm-hmm. about something that happened in a country that he was exiled from. And I think that is really important because a lot of capitalist economies or economists will also sort of assume that capitalist freedom and uh, a repressive regime are contradictions in terms. But, you know, time and time again, we see that's not true. You see that in Chile, you see it in, you know, Korea, you see it in the Philippines, like all kinds of countries where the United States especially decided that uh, a right wing dictator who is very friendly to U.S. capital is better than, you know, a left wing person or government that will fulfill the needs of its people. So uh, an important kind of uh, thing that the, the freedom of commodities is not only not uh, congruent or coterminous with the freedom of human beings, but in fact might be at odds with them. Well, uh, we've talked a little bit so far about how you know the economy is a, a war of <laughs> a war of noblemen, right? Really uh, well-meaning people. They're trying to outdo each other, and sometimes there are even like some radical actors within that war, like the GameStop guys, <laughs> the people buying. Uh, what's that even called? I can't remember what, what the name of that thing is. Wouldn't people do that? But like they trade stocks really quickly to make a bunch of money. Shorting. Uh, uh, shorting, thank you. Me, I was th- kept thinking of meme stocks, which I think is also a thing, but I can't remember exactly. <laughs> yeah. A lot of things going on there. Um, anyway, so there's there's war on that level, right? But then Hinklemar also mentions that, like, well, capitalism is also a kind of actual war in more of the way you might think about it. Um, so he kind of gives a, a slew of examples of the ways that capitalism leads to, like, particular types of devastation um, that is fundamentally anti-human um, and anti-nature, in which that's a turn that we'll kind of get to in a minute. But uh, l- let me read this piece here and we'll kind of we'll get to it in, uh, in a more uh, programmatic way. Uh, Hinklemart writes, when artificial sodium nitrate won out over natural sodium nitrate. Sodium nitrate, by the way, is what you use to make uh, food like shelf stable. So that's interesting. I learned that when I read this. Didn't know that before. (laughs) When artificial sodium nitrate won out over natural sodium nitrate in Chile, a population numbering in the hundreds of thousands had to leave their homes and wander about the country, living from beggary. 
The entire region now looks as if it had been the target of a major bombing. The same sort of thing occurred in the Amazon region, when artificial rubber won out over natural rubber. During the final decades of the 19th century, when the dynamism of coffee imposed its challenge on the daring, resolute captains of El Salvador and Guatemala, they introduced so-called liberal reforms, the main effect which was the introduction of forced labor for dispossessed Indians. At the present time, throughout the Third World, there are gigantic projects underway for felling timber using large armies of workers who were, and and a few years ago, ousted from their own land, which now has become a desert. The famines in the Sahil region in Ethiopia were the first result of the scorched earth tactic of embattled capitalist business firms. I think that this is really worth pointing out because it's not just that there's like this, uh, you know, like metaphorical war or like, you know, gentleman's war happening on the business field, uh, but it is an actual war against working people. Um, And I think that's the one that uh, exists in a not metaphorical way whatsoever, right? It's the one that exists Mm -hmm. in a real way that's um, creating uh, deforested land that creates dispossessed workers, that creates the expropriation of um, of indigenous land, and so on. So uh, I think I guess what you get here though is is the real story. Um, you know, there are these overarching theological stories that people tell about the market, but then there's also uh, the untold part, the part that that business people would never really consider as necessarily bad. Um, they would just consider it as like, you know, business as usual. That's how it gets done. And that, you know, whatever, I guess too bad for them, but this is what we need to do to, to win the other, the gentleman's war. Exactly. And I mean, this is, I think the big important piece of Marxism in general is to say that all these uh, so-called laws of economics, they cash out in the, you know, destruction of people's lives and livelihood. Um, we've talked about this before on the show too, but, you know, Engels has this great concept of what he calls social murder, which is to say all the conditions in a person's life that kind of stack on top of each other that lead to premature deaths or foreshortened lifespans and so on. Um, that is a form of social murder for which the ruling class is responsible because they have the means to improve people's lives, to change the conditions in which people live, to give them a healthier life, and yet they don't do that. You know, they use that capital for other other things, or they organize uh, life in different ways um, that make sure some people's lives are not as valuable. And I think it's uh, an important piece of why Hinkle Merrick calls this all metaphysical. It's the metaphysics of the entrepreneurs, because you really have to impose a, a thing on top of the physical world. You know, uh, I guess for folks who don't know, that's like a $2 philosophy word, metaphysics, <laughs> you know, uh, meta being kind of what you what you think when you hear other things that are meta, like it's above or about. Um, so metaphysical is, you know, beyond the physical or around the physical. And the fact that capitalism is a metaphysics is to say that it's not a one-to-one correlation to the laws of the universe. Um, it's an imposition on the world that organizes it in particular ways. And so all the all the the war is fought according to the metaphysical rules of capitalism among business firms. Um, that has this kind of you know yeah this consequence that make whole whole regions look like bombed out places even though a war never took place there. It's a form of you know, legalized abandonment, legalized destruction, uh, completely innocuous and, uh, you know, like even expected uh, parts. Um, as Hinkle Merritt says, the, they think as generals, but they don't think about the casualties of the war that they take on. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, Hinkle Merritt does go out of, the, out of his way to, to uh, do a big dunk on the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. We recently did an episode about that, so go back and listen to it if you want to know more of the details. 
but he basically goes through, I mean, he puts the IMF through the ringer, right? He says like, you know, they're, they're responsible for all this stuff. They're responsible for, um, uh, telling, telling governments to do things that are, you know, basically antisocial, um, cutting, um, cutting benefits, cutting all kinds of things, uh, to be, you know, more in line with the interests of capital. Uh, he does say this, though. This is a, a kind of a, a great explainer of the IMF and why it's bad if you ever need one. He says, but there's one area in which the IMF mission takes a positive interest in a given country, it examines very carefully what can be extracted. Then its advice contains demands regarding deliveries of raw materials and concessions for export assembly industries. The forests are doomed to die and the other raw materials to be plundered. The IMF missions plot the destruction of the human being and of nature, nature being the future life of humans. An interesting way to think about nature, not one that I necessarily like all the way through, but I'm here for it. Thanks, Inclamart. <laughs> Hence, they, uh, they, the IMF, they leave a trail of blood behind them, the blood of the poor, which they convert into money, which is the blood of their economy, the blood of the Leviathan. Uh, the, sound, the sound of their dollar becomes a cry of terror. Some great rhetoric there at the end. I love that. Um, but anyways, this is this is good, right? It's not just the business people who are doing this. It's also like these governmental and also like para-governmental organizations like the IMF who are using a whole bunch of different disciplinary measures to basically force countries into to, to going along with this to, to make sure that this gets done, right? Um, and uh, there you have it, I guess. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a real destruction at the bottom of this that business people just don't like to realize and uh, they're bad for doing so. I agree. They are bad for doing so. Uh, yeah, and capitalism comes with all these other actors that kind of continue to ensure the freedom of commodities at the expense of human life. Um, that's right. We should uh, talk more about this metaphysics piece, too, because I think that's the key to the whole essay. Um, Hank Lemerit has a couple paragraphs where he summarizes it up a little. He says, in entrepreneurial metaphysics, uh, nature is a strictly mercantile nature for which physical nature is a mere vehicle utterly deprived of rights. The laws governing that nature are the laws of the response to the dynamism of commodities, a nature wherein freedom is the freedom of prices and business firms. The values of concrete life are virtually non-existent in it. In fact, they are unnatural. Therefore, when this liberal thinking proceeds to legitimize slavery as Locke does, it does so in the most merciless terms imaginable. To the entrepreneur, nature is strictly metaphysical. It does not transcend physical nature, but is opposed to it. It is pure metaphysics, and hence it is a nature that is completely invisible. Prices, commodities, and business firms are the elements comprising it, whereas the elements comprising concrete nature are human beings and the values that they cherish. Uh, I think this is a really wild and very important thing, and something I haven't really heard anybody else put quite the same way. Uh, that not only do capitalists have this metaphysical view of the world, but what is in fact real or natural actually is sort of uh, viewed as being unnatural to a capitalist. So, yeah. for example, if you think that, like, you know, there's enough food for everybody to eat and not go hungry, like that is a real fact about the world. And, you know, Hinkle Merit being a good Christian is like that that's the natural state of things that everybody, you know, is able to have their fill and not go hungry. But to a capitalist, that is unnatural, like that's going against the laws of of their nature or the laws of the metaphysical reality of capitalism or whatever that they, you know, are all supposed to be subservient to. And I think that's a really important thing that um, capitalism makes it so that all the things that are really natural to human life are in fact considered to be, you know, heretical or unnatural or kind of like <laughs> unbelief, you know, in the, the system and uh, people get treated accordingly. Yeah, exactly. Here's an example that might make 
some of the big philosophical words make a little bit more sense. Uh, so Hinklemart writes, when food is scarce, according to this law, the, that is the capitalist law, right? The capitalist uh, story about how the world works. When food is scarce, prices should increase. That means that some will be left without food and consequently die. According to the entrepreneurial metaphysics, they die as a result of a dictate of nature. If, on the contrary, prices and distribution of food are controlled, everyone would survive. But according to entrepreneurial metaphysics, that would be an act against nature. The law of nature calls for increased prices. Like, duh. <laughs> I guess it's like, it's so, uh, parsing it out just like this is uh, is great for making it seem as absurd as it really is, right? That the idea that, like, scarcity, um, that, that, like, you would conceive of the law of supply and demand as, like, some kind of, like, real thing that exists in a meaningful way that would mean that you can't feed people. Um, but that is exactly the way that, um, that our society, the entire world thinks, basically. I mean, this is, like, capitalist logic, right? If something is scarce, it should be it should cost more, um, even though the scarcity is invented and the price is invented. Um, anyways, uh, Hinklemark continues and says price control was unnatural, a, dep- a depraved act breaking the social contract, and in the end, uh, get an act against humankind. But by against humankind, it's like basically he means like against commodities, right? Against the type of freedom that uh, only capitalism allows, which is not the freedom of people, but of um, you know, things, things that you buy. So uh, I think this is this is helpful, right? Because it, it shows you exactly what is meant here by metaphysics. It's a type of like logic, a type of judgment, uh, a type of like determination about what nature is and like what the laws of nature are. What are things that are like immovable because of just the way they work? And capitalism thinks that, you know, um, a scarcity mindset is that thing. You can't get around it. It just is the way that it is. Sorry. Um, but uh, you don't have to think like that is the good news. Uh, you could think of a whole different, <laughs> a whole different way. Um, I, I don't know if anyone else is paying attention to this whole discourse, and it's definitely don't. Don't log on to Twitter if you don't have to. Um, but Nina Turner, a, uh, a politician, she was tweeting about uh, about free healthcare, about how it's it's good. People shouldn't have to, you know, uh, like not be able to afford insulin or whatever to take care of their diabetes. And people were losing their mind about that. Um, and when I say people, I mean libertarians were losing their mind about that because uh, they're like, you know, who's going to pay for it? Where does it come from? And she's like, uh, you know, it's going to come from spending less money on bombs and more money on, on uh, paying for insulin. And uh, an idea that they fundamentally can't get their minds around or that they can't get their minds around, but they just choose not to. All that to say that the, the things that are immovable laws of capital are really just uh, extremely movable laws, but capitalists don't want to because they are in their best interest. Right. Uh, He also illustrates this with uh, an example about labor that I think is helpful. Um, He says, entrepreneurs follow the same logic when they dismiss a worker or refuse someone a job. They neither hire nor fire arbitrarily and could not do so. When workers protest, entrepreneurs refer to the market situation, claiming that it's the market, not they, that has forced the layoff. As entrepreneurs, they would very gladly provide jobs, but the market does not allow it. Once again, the market and God are to blame. The entrepreneur is not involved. And once more, the entrepreneur avoids or precludes discussion of an alternative systemization of production wherein no market would necessitate leaving anyone jobless. And I think that's the the key, right? Is entrepreneurs also kind of forego responsibility or capitalists forego responsibility because they chuck all the bad things that they do up to, um, you know, the laws of capitalism, which is also incredibly annoying because... You know, you think about like uh, like Bob Iger, the Disney guy. He was uh, getting in hot water because he's been saying all this incredibly dumb stuff about uh, the writers who are on strike and the actors who are on strike. 
And meanwhile, this guy like owns a big yacht. He makes millions and millions of dollars. And uh, he's complaining about how, you know, they're going to have to like pay up. And on the one hand, it's like, so he will say things like, you know, he'll he'll appeal to the, the economic situation and so on when he's talking about these different things. But also like, capitalists will just never admit that they just shouldn't have all the bullshit stuff that they have <laughs> like you know for them uh it, it just is also a law of nature that they are entitled to all of the um excess and waste that they can possibly amass uh in the course of their incredibly brief human lives and i think that is important too that the the laws sort of absolve capitalists from doing right by people whether it's by food or jobs but it also absolves them from really like thinking that critically about their own life and you know what makes that possible and whether or not they have more than enough and so on so it capitalism performs all these also really weird things for kind of the the conscience and soul of capitalists as well yeah i think that makes a lot of sense um just uh extremely <laughs> cursed way to think um well, let's round the conversation now. We're getting kind of close to the end of the hour here, and uh, we should get to the the conclusion. Um, you know, like like you said at the very beginning, Dean, there's not a clear A, C, and B here, and that's true. But let's get to the the B. <laughs> let's get to the end here. Um, whether it's a clear one or not, we're going to force it. So uh, the very last section of uh, Hinklemart's essay is called Entrepreneurial Idolatry. So Hinklemart writes, except in the view of entrepreneurial metaphysics itself, it's quite clear that such metaphysics is idolatry. In the very sense in which this term is used in the biblical tradition, Marx calls it fetishism. It is the subjugation of the human being and of human life to a product of human labor, with the consequent destruction of human life per se through a relationship that is established with an idol. Every idol is, in this respect, a moloch that devours the human being. The idol is a god associated with oppression. Um, I think this is a cool way to kind of parse it out. Um, I think in like evangelical terms, or at least when I was growing up, uh, when I thought of idolatry, it always came down to like, you know, are you putting something before God? Uh, are you, you know, letting something else kind of get in your way? And you get that sense too in, in this here, but I like that, uh, I like the way that Hinklemart puts it, right? The subjugation of human being and human life to just the product of human labor. And then that means it's like going to be destructive in the end. Um, you know, you're making humans uh, a means to a particular end of other humans. And uh, that's idolatry. Um, one that is theological and has a lot to do with like, I think, piety and God and stuff, or, or at least it can. But it's also one that is, uh, I think, a, a pretty unique economic insight that only Marxists really know how to talk about. Yeah, exactly. And it also leads to an alternative endpoint. So we said at the beginning of the conversation there's a way of doing idolatry critique where then the answer to it is to go to church better or retreat into church or be a better Christian or direct your attention, whatever it might be. But it's not really like an organizing platform. And mm -hmm. Hinkle Merit is the opposite. In fact, he concludes the essay saying this, this fetish must be opposed by the biblical criticism of idolatry and the discernment of gods. In biblical tradition, the true God is the one whose will is that the, is that the concrete human being with concrete needs be the center of society and of history. In competing with the human being, the idol competes with God. It sets itself up as God as it converts the human being into a depraved being whose misery is the foil of God's grandeur. The biblical God, on the other hand, lives where society and history revolve around the concrete human being and the fulfillment of human needs. And what I think is really radical here, although Hinklemerit doesn't necessarily spell this out exactly, 
is you kind of have to like build a you know a social society if you don't want to live with idolatry (laughs) and i think that's really important you know like you're always going to be navigating an idolatrous situation um so long as the human person is not at the center of all of social life not just your own maybe like spiritual subjectivity or your relationship to the poor and needy or you know your relationship to the nation but the whole community in which you live has to be sort of like primed to be able to welcome a god who you know appreciates actual human life and i think that just sets you on a different path so it's it's the kind of idolatry critique that i can get behind despite uh being nervous about other other forms of when people start talking about idolatry yeah i mean i think it's good because you can't use this as like a cudgel to like uh I don't know, uh, discipline heretics with or something, right? Like if somebody has some kind of like different theological or diverging idea about like, uh, I don't know how the persons of the Trinity work or whatever, (laughs) this isn't like a helpful, a helpful tool to like get them in line, but it is a helpful tool to tell capitalists to, uh, buzz off and stop being awful. Uh, which is, I think, uh, (laughs) way more helpful. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I mean, just thinking of, uh, the Kavanaugh piece, I mean, not to pick on him too much. I guess I pick on him because I read him more than others, um, because I think he deserves to be read more than than others. So that's my like uh, backhanded compliment. Maybe somehow I'm about to <laughs> criticize him because I think he's worth criticizing. But uh, he, um, in his uh, early book, um, Torture and Eucharist, which is a study of the Church in Chile and also a theological interpretation of it under Pinochet specifically. Um, in that book, he sort of makes this argument that like the Eucharist is sort of the true politics of the church, that it performs uh, the political vision of the church. Um, you know, you you confess your sins, you uh, take the Eucharist as this sort of mystical body that, that binds you back in solidarity with Jesus as the first victim of torture. You know, like it has some things going for it. It's a beautiful picture of, of the Eucharist and so on. Uh, But the irony is, in a whole study about Chile, um, the people that he doesn't really engage are precisely Chilean exiles who are theologizing about their own experience. And here you have somebody like Hinkelamerit, who's also looking at something like idolatry. So in Torture and Eucharist, you know, Kavanaugh is is interested in the idolatry of of the nation, which becomes a bigger theme for him later on. Um, Hinkelamerit is also interested in idolatry, but his conclusion... I think is just more more active and you can see that it's a conclusion that is sort of formed by the victory of Allende rather than like the survival under Pinochet or something like that and I think that's a really important point of difference I think so too um well I think there's something cool about this though I mean you know uh people in church will often talk about idolatry um in I think maybe some uncomfortable terms or terms I'm uncomfortable with but uh largely miss the (laughs) The forest for the trees, I guess. <laughs> Maybe that's the wrong <laughs> metaphor. A lot of metaphors in this one. It's hard to keep track of them all. Um, but anyways, I think there's like something really good here, right? That this is like this is a critique of capitalism that does. Uh, I, I like it because like because theology is really intrinsic to it in a way that's not like I don't know paying lip service or just kind of like right. saying nice words or or relying on it rhetorically. But like the the very idea that like you have to kind of like strike out against um, idolatry is is an important uh, undertaking for people who are Christians, and uh, you can't you can't do it unless you like are critiquing the um, idolatrous and extremely sinful structures that keep people oppressed. All I'm trying to say here is that you can you can bring this one to church is is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> right. Uh, I think it's also really great because. Uh... 
it demonstrates the utility of theology in left-wing conversations in a way that feels right. Like, I saw a handful of leftist people um, tweeting about Hinkle Merritt after his death, which was really interesting to me. You don't really get that, you know, when theologians die, typically. And uh, what I think is helpful is that he demonstrates that theologians are maybe, like, uniquely positioned to be able to pull back the veil on some of the metaphysical stuff operating here. You know, like... Uh, Marxists do ideology critique and that is great uh, but it takes a Christian to be able to like understand how like <laughs> how metaphysics mess people up because maybe Christians are also a little bit messed up by them <laughs> so I think uh, it just shows too that theology actually does have some interesting transferable skills when it comes to thinking about political economy that it's not just like a an add-on at the end for Hinkle Merritt they, they sort of go yeah. together his economic and theological training in a way that is really unique yeah yeah for sure Thanks for listening to Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Magnificast. If you support us at $2 or more, you can invite to our cool behind the paywall discord channel where we talk about all kinds of great things. Uh, a lot of jokes, a lot of, a lot of japes. It's great. Um, you're going to love it. Get on in there with us. It's a fun time. Um, our intro music is by Mario Armstrong. Our outro music is by The Logical Spoon. And we'll see you next week. Church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord.